0: Welcome, everyone, to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters and connections in the ever-expanding universe that revolves around Stephen King's Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McCurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. And you can buy merch at store.twoguysdarktowercame.com. In this episode, we'll cover The Dead Zone, chapters 17 through 23. Let's start the show!
1: Johnny gets a job as a reading tutor for the son of a wealthy man. This provides him with a lot of time to visit with the politicians who have descended upon New Hampshire ahead of the presidential primaries of 1976. He shakes hands with many of them and usually just gets bland readings, except for two, Jimmy Carter, who he is sure will become president, and Greg Stilson, running for Congress, who gives Johnny a dangerous vibe. This worries Johnny, and he begins to ponder the ethics of what he should do next. These thoughts are put aside, though, when he foresees a deadly fire at the restaurant where his student is about to go for a graduation party.
0: Sean, the name of this section of the book is The Laughing Tiger. What do you make of that?
1: Well, I had no idea what it meant until Johnny talks to another employee of the rich man he works for. And this is a, a Vietnam refugee whose name is No, who tells him a parable about a tiger who has eaten people and how villagers had set a trap for it and baited it with a human being. And then the tiger fell into the pit. The tiger wasn't quite dead. And then the people had to beat it because once a tiger gets a taste for live meat and is dangerous, there's nothing you could do but kill it is how this goes around. And this is Noah's way of dealing with what to do about dangerous people. And it is not, Brought up in that sense, but also because Johnny's having these visions where he sees a little bit into the future, but there's these like stripes. Mm -hmm. And I think that that reminds him of a tiger as well. So there's this double meaning. And I think it emphasizes the fact that there is something dangerous happening now, even more so than Frank Dodd in the last chapter we read. And King is highlighting it by calling this whole section, The Laughing Tiger.
0: Yes. No. No tells the story of the children's game that Mm. he learned playing growing up and that game is something that is both fun for the players because it is just a game but also it involves one of the kids dressing up as a tiger and trying to like kill the other the other players it's kind of like tag but maybe a little bit more violent (laughs) yes and and he associates this with the various dangerous politicians in vietnam that they knew how to play they remembered that childhood game and they were the laughing tigers and he know says that maybe that the stilson is a laughing tiger Hmm. he knows the game even if he's never played this vietnamese childhood game and that's where johnny's like yeah that's exactly what I've been thinking that you know it kind of gives me the vocabulary I need to to think about how I feel about Stilson, and I really was just blown away by No's story about the the tiger and the the trap and stuff like that, and how matter of fact he was, yeah, which we'll talk about more a little bit later in the episode.
1: Johnny and Noah are, are good examples here, right because Nos trying to become a citizen. So he and his citizenship class are like going and seeing these politicians and Johnny's like going around because he's curious about them and he's sort of testing his powers. And I like how King says, like most of these politicians don't give off anything to Johnny. Like they're entirely bland, um, nothing specific, nothing important at all. This, despite the fact that we've spent the first two thirds of the book with a lot of politics in the midst, as Johnny tries to catch up on what he missed, yeah, like all the stuff with Nixon went on, and he's just sort of shocked, and so now he's interested in how these politicians work, and it turns out like eh, they're all just sort of they're all just sort of boring, um except for stilson
0: and one of the scariest aspects of Stilson is that most people who could actually influence a, a lot of these political outcomes see Stilson as a joke, yeah, uh, there are far too many people who seem to be true fans of Stilson, so he's building up a a supportive electorate who will help him get into office and the people who could like say not donate to his campaign or not help him make the connections he needs to get into the right you know organizations and basically just build up his his reputation they're just like ah this guy's a clown Eh, he'll blow away just as fast as he blew into town. Yep. It, that's how it, it always goes. Johnny's yep. boss Roger says like this man is a clown. He then goes on to say even if Stilson turns out to be as crazy in Washington as he is in Ridgeway, he's only renting the seat for 2 years because as far as Roger's concerned Stilson's going to fuck the people over. Yep. And he says to Johnny Stilson's going to learn a lesson when he's in office don't fuck the people over for too long because they'll elect you because you give them three hot dogs. But if you don't do anything for them, they realize it and they don't reelect you. And he thinks that that's all this this will be. But Johnny has superpowers (laughs) and he also has the the counsel of this very wise Vietnamese expat telling him, maybe we can't just laugh this guy off.
1: Right. And so Roger, Johnny's boss, laughs him off. But even the candidates that Stilson is running against aren't as forceful as they could be. So the Democratic candidate calls Stilson a practical joker, trying to throw a monkey wrench into the workings of the Democratic process. And the Republican candidate is stronger in his criticism, calling Stilson a cynical carnival pitch man. Notice we're t- back to the carnival, like Johnny mm-hmm. was at early on, uh, who's playing the whole idea of the free election as a burlesque house joke. And this is from the news story about Stilson, and even at the end of the news story, isn't it? Uh, Walter Cronkite who's like, oh, that's just the way it is." Like, and and goes yeah. on like like they they laugh it off and not see the seriousness of this as if it's just, oh, it's just part of the pendulum. Things will go back, and no one's being as forceful as they could be in denouncing it or trying to to stop this.
0: Yeah, doesn't one of the, wa- the one of the talking heads like Cronkite himself or somebody like? takes a a hot dog from off camera into camera and take a bite out of it. And like, and that's the news. Yeah, like He's not endorsing Stilson, but he's having fun with the stupidity that Stilson represents and not treating him or not taking him seriously.
1: And that is sort of what Stilson and his followers want, right? Mm -hmm. Because they're like, see, they're not taking us seriously, but they should, because here we are and bearing the importance of it. And like you said, Johnny's got superpowers, so he realizes, hey, I'm I'm getting this this thing off of Stilson. I see him taking the oath of office to become the president. He's he's got his hand on a Bible in front of the Chief Justice. And then everything's sort of blurry after that. There's these these stripes. I can't see what's happening. It's in the actual dead zone. But I know something bad is happening. The Chief Justice seems uncomfortable. Stilson Unlike everybody thinks he's, you know, it's, he's not just running the seat for two years. He's using this to become president. And Johnny asks an important question, a question that seems to be central to, to a lot of King's thinking, not only here, but in the decades to come. The question. The question. Yes.
0: And that question is stated very plainly. If you could jump into a time machine and go back to 1932, would you kill Hitler? We get feedback from several different characters because Johnny asks everyone around him this question. Yep. And it's interesting how we get not a wide variety of answers, but we get slightly different versions of the of, of some of the answers from different people. And
1: it's not a black and white question. Like it's either yes. Like the, the question is asked is yes or no. Mm-hmm. Would you or wouldn't you? But the range of answers that he gets, is, I think, is what's important, because it's not just yes or no, it's the reasoning behind the yes or no.
0: Right. The most important answer, I think, is the one that no gives. Yeah. And he says, I am thinking that this Stilson is like that bad tiger with its taste for human meat. I think a trap should be made for him. I think he should be falling into it. And if he still lives, I think he should be beaten to death. And then he like, he says this with a serene smile and then
1: says, see you later and walks away kind of thing. And and Johnny is, is horrified yeah. and he's like, we can't do that. His reasoning is like, well, we're Americans. We can't do that. And Noah's like, yeah, you're Americans. Isn't that what you guys do? In, in my <laughs> experience, you're the best. You're really good at doing that. So yeah. So, so no is unequivocal in what he thinks should be done. And he, he, he makes the connection not only with Hitler, because again, Johnny's asking this hypothetically, he can't ask other people, he can't ask people outright, like, hey, I know this about this guy, what should I do? So he, he's asking it sort of this removed by saying, well, it's sort of like the Hitler situation, but no is like, understands like, okay, it's still something that you're talking about. Yep. He should be done. Yep. Johnny asks a bunch of other people too. He's at his father's wedding and there happens to be a world war one vet there. it's his. I guess his step grandfather at this point, he's a world war one vet. And he says, if I saw Hitler, I would stab him, but I'd make sure to, and I'd twist the knife, but I'd make sure I had rat poison on it first. Like he's very clear. Like I want Hitler dead. And his reasons are a little bit different. So he was in world war one, which was sold to him as the war to end all wars. Mm -hmm. You know, 20 years later, Hitler comes around and we got to do it all again. And not only that, He had to send his son to World War II and his son died. So for him, it's sort of like my service was wasted and then my son died over this guy. There's no way that I would let this guy live. There's too much at stake.
0: It's a pretty amazing scene that King writes with this old man who is nearly blind and how he fumbles a pocket knife out of his pocket that is worn with incredible age snaps the blade open and then uses an actual knife to pantomime his stabbing of Hitler in the heart with a rat poison coated blade. He doesn't just say these things. He doesn't jab with an imaginary knife in his hand. He takes out a fucking knife. (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty intense. He's not the only person that Johnny asks. He uh, Johnny also asks roger his boss and he has the most divergent answer he says i think we should work within the system if i could go back in a time machine i would join the nazi party and try to take hitler down by making by exposing him for being like a a whack job or something like take away his power but not murder the man and that seems reasonable but it doesn't sound like it would be effective
1: No." Because it wasn't, right? Like I think there were members of the party who were trying to do that and and were unsuccessful. But also, I think it betrays who Roger is. Roger is Mm -hmm. a very wealthy person that's made abundantly clear who has the most to lose here. He is a man who wants to maintain the status quo as much as possible. So how can I do what I think is the right thing without putting myself out there and without risking much? And that sort of is interesting because he's put immediately into conflict with No, right? Who the the Vietnamese yeah. refugees who he who he hires and who is very clear, like No, you gotta you gotta do something about this. And and Rogers like, eh. And then not only that is once he gives his answer, like Johnny tries to do a follow up and he's like, eh, let's talk about something else. Like he doesn't even want to talk about it right. because it's hypothetical and probably because it makes him feel uncomfortable too. And then there's one last person that Johnny talks to. And that's Chuck, who is Roger Chatsworth's son, the student that Johnny is teaching. And the first thing that Chuck says, he doesn't give an answer right away. He says, what would happen to me? Am I going to get caught or am I not going to get caught? Mm -hmm. Am I immediately going to be transported back to 1970 and my life's going to go on except that Hitler was killed? And like, what's going to happen? And then before Johnny really gets to answer that in too much detail, Chuck's like, well, it doesn't matter. I would kill him because... If I didn't, how could I live with myself knowing what would have happened? Right, And that gets to the conscience part, right? Mm-hmm. Roger wants to do the right thing, but really for not a clear reason. He's not able to ex- explicate why. The World War One vet wants to do it mostly out of revenge, but Chuck is like, no, I got to do it because how could I live with myself if I did it?
0: And, and no recognizes what a dangerous leader can do and the only practical way in his experience that. Uh, You you can stop that person that type of person, and I think that's what's really important to all of these different responses. It's the lived experience of each of them that Mm -hmm. informs their answers. Yeah, Roger is a wealthy man, and that definitely impacts his willingness to like just say yes. I would go back in time and murder somebody, Hitler or, or whomever. But I suspect that he didn't live through a war the way that the war veteran did yep that guy knows what it's like to be in foxhole and hear bullets whiz past his head and watch his comrades in arms fly up into bits he knows what that's like and he knows that there are people in the world like hitler who will make that happen again and again so he has that experience no has a similar experience he grew up in a way and in a place that not only did he have to live through the ravages of war, but they also lived in a place that was just dangerous from nature. The tiger is something that would be there with, with war or not, culture or not. It's, that's just the geography. They're apex predators, where no comes from,
1: right? <laughs>
0: that are not humans, and there are ways to deal with them, and, that's, and he describes it in how, how to go about that. And it's Chuck who sort of like, sort of wavers in between his father's stance and and maybe knows stance, where Chuck is still like young enough to be bold enough to like say that he would kill Hitler, but all he really knows is what the history books have told him. Yeah. So he's like, well, there are a lot of statistics about how many people died, and I don't like how big that number is. So if I could do something about making that number really small, I would do that.
1: But he's just
0: been a spoiled rich kid his whole life, and he drives a Corvette, and he doesn't know what it's like to actually be in a war.
1: No. But he's able to approach it like the trolley problem, right? And say Mm -hmm. like, okay, well, I guess I would do, no matter what happened to me, I would do it because I couldn't live with myself otherwise. And it gives that moral answer that is important. And even the people that Johnny doesn't ask, we get to get some sense of their piece. So Warren Richardson is a banker in the town where Stilson is mayor mm-hmm. and he gets threatened by one of Stilson's motorcycle goons. And when he he gets threatened, he's like, oh, maybe I should do something about it. But then he says, eh, let someone else blow the whistle. Someone with less to lose. Warren Richardson started his car, went home to his pork chops and said nothing at all. Someone else would surely put a stop to it, right? Like just sort of pushing this off, like, eh, it's not my problem. It'll be someone else. It's the Peter Parker, hey, I'm not going to stop the burglar. Why should I? There's cops for that, right? Or taking it back to Hitler. It's like, well, they're not the, the
0: Nazis aren't hunting down me and my family, so yep. I can just let this go on a little longer.
1: And that's the the point that Ch- Chatsworth comes with too, and he, he goes on and says, he's a clown, so what? Maybe people need a comic relief from time to time. And then he says, Stilson's harmless. Because again, for- chatsworth the government isn't a important thing in his life like he's going to be rich no matter if the democrats in power for republicans power like it's not going to affect him as a rich white guy um and so that's sort of what he says eh let, let's let some crazies in every once in a while what, what harm is it going to do mm-hmm. i think the important thing about chuck's answer and this moral piece is that it draws on this sort of christian idea about what to do as a good person and and how you're supposed to act. And then this draws on Johnny's mission from God Mm. that we've been talking about, that this oath he made to his mom at the end of her life.
2: Yeah.
0: The biggest struggle that Johnny's feeling is, yeah, there's the moral struggle, but also how this power that he has developed makes him feel. Mm. It doesn't feel good to be able to help people. No. It's like physically terrible for him. And he's comparing it to the the height of joy and accomplishment that he feels having these breakthroughs with his student, Chuck. Chuck's figuring out how to get past his hangups, and he's learning to read. That's why Johnny's there. Johnny's a good teacher. He's working his craft, and he thinks, this is why I exist. And if you want to put a religious spin on it, this is why God made me to do this not to lay hands on objects and tell people magic stories. The thing is when he tells like his physical therapist, Eileen McGowan's uh, that the, when he tells Eileen McGowan that her house is on fire, he felt terrible mm-hmm. even though it helped her and it cost him so much. And he figured out the, the murder mystery of Frank Dodd and it, made him feel terrible and he got frostbite on his fingers in the process and he became a social pariah and he suffered yep so he's doing god's work in his mother's eyes but it comes at a great cost to him it's he's he's always paying a
1: huge price yeah you had mentioned before about we we had talked about like ah uh, why is king doing sort of like double work when it comes to how Johnny gets his powers, right? Like he hit Mm -hmm. his head once when he was a kid and then he was in a coma. Like why, why is King doing this? And part of this is seeing this again, right? Like King sort of repeating the bad things happened to Johnny when he found out about his therapist fire, bad things are happening now when he, with Frank Dodd. And now he is at this graduation party, which is supposed to be this immense joy for Chuck, right? Like he, he graduated, things are going well for him. And then Johnny has this vision of like, there's going to be this terrible fire at this party. And it's just like one more instance. And it's, we're wondering like, why does King sort of keep building this? Like we as readers get it. All right, Mm -hmm. we get it. Johnny's got this power and it's not working out good for him. But But it's this continuing of the scaffolding as things escalate, there seems to be more consequences. So the first time with the therapist, a bunch of reporters come after him. Right, And it's awkward, and then he starts getting people harassing him at home. But it's it's a big deal, but it's not a huge deal. The next time with Frank Dodd, things have escalated. People have died because of Frank Dodd. And then Johnny loses his job. He's no longer Mm going to be a teacher. Like you said, he's a social pariah. He starts to feel terrible. Now this thing's happened at the graduation party, and the upper class of this town is all around, and they're just sort of horrified. And even when he saves these people's lives, yeah, he gets harassed. Like Chuck's girlfriend, just like, oh my god, that guy's a freak. What the hell? And yeah, he caused this. Yeah, right? he's the one who caused this, even though he just saved dozens of young kids' lives. And I think King's starting to like amp up and ratcheting up the uh, the consequences and and the feelings around all of this with by scaffolding it like this. And we see that even more as we see. Johnny start to fall apart. We talked a little bit about this last episode about how people keep commenting on how Johnny just looks terrible and and feels terrible. And there's just even more of it in this section. Yeah. He's like death warmed over. (laughs) Everyone keeps saying like, Johnny looked like a sick man. And he's got this streak of of, uh, white in his hair that seemed to happen overnight. And the rest of his hair was starting to go gray. And other people are like, boy, you don't look well. And like, this is all throughout this section. Like people just keep com. Like that's the other thing. Like if I see somebody who doesn't look well, I don't feel the need to comment on it, but now he's mm-hmm. got people who like barely know him. we like, Hey, you don't look good. Or, or people who are specifically picking him out. Like when he goes and sees Stilson and is it Stilson? who No, the, when he sees Jimmy Carter and Jimmy mm-hmm. Carter has FBI protection and the FBI is like, Oh my God, this guy's a lunatic. Yeah. He must be an assassin because he looks so terrible.
0: Yeah. I think that's a good point that you made. That you might notice somebody doesn't look fit, or 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 they might be a little sick, but you don't need to like go up to them and and say, "Yeah, you you don't look good. Go to the doctor, right or something." If somebody looks ill enough, you might, and I think maybe that's the point that mm. that King is like, Johnny really looks like a combination of animated corpse and <laughs> and like Frankenstein's monster. Yeah. Between his skeletal frame, his too tall body, and his body crisscrossed with scars from all of the surgeries, and uh, the fact that he's like just underweight despite all of his Pepsis. Yep. This book brought to you by Pepsi. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess any t- anybody would see him. All he needs is like aviator sunglasses and a hoodie, and he's <laughs> just like the Unabomber, right?
1: Yeah, and. The other thing about Johnny is we know how intelligent he is. Like Mm -hmm. when he's talking to Sarah, he's got a sense of humor. He's charming. Um, When he's talking about the educational background on how he's going to approach the reading with Chuck, he's like very articulate and like cites all these studies. But when he has his visions, he becomes this like (laughs) irrational inarticulate mess where he's just sort of screaming out phrases that he has no idea what they mean and is just like very frantic about it and people are like oh my god like this guy's totally out of the norm and so that doesn't help either that it's not just the physical nature of it but like mentally he doesn't seem correct at those points either
0: it does sap his credibility when he goes from this very rational intelligent person to like
1: get fire no
0: not you know like (laughs) Why would anybody believe you? But if Johnny had the vision about the the restaurant burning down of the lightning rods, quietly he took Chuck aside and said, Chuck, I have some information <laughs> about the future. Don't go there. Yeah, it would be a lot maybe a lot easier to to convince people.
1: Yeah. So uh we finally get the answer to that early, early, early chapter about the The lightning rod salesman hitting into that bar slash restaurant. Mm. I'm not sure if King needed to have that so early on, but at least he tied up that knot, that story thread. I
0: guess. (laughs) I don't think he needed it at all. It was, uh, do you have lightning rods? Yes, I do. Look at the roof. No, you don't. Okay. I mean, all (laughs) of that happens at this point in the story. We didn't need that early thing. And the the strange or, or the the random character of the lightning rod salesman yeah
1: i don't know either another good section of the book like just the ratcheting up of the tension like mm-hmm. we're, we're getting somewhere i felt like after frank Dodd is like oh what's gonna happen now like you know like they seem to wrap up the the big murder but things are ratcheting up again so hey let's talk about some dark tower thinnies The section, it starts off with Johnny giving Chuck a typical Western novel because his idea is like, I'm going to get him to read by giving him something interesting to read that he can just sort of fly through, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to give him a hard text or I'm not going to give him Dostoevsky. I'm just going to give him a typical Zane Grey book. And Chuck opens the paperback with a picture of the gunslinger shouldering his way through a set of saloon bat wings and began to read in his slow, halting voice. And I'm like, yeah, I could picture Roland going into the bar in Tull. And uh, Mm -hmm. I don't know how much of a Dark Tower Thinny this is because I think it's a cliche that there's a gunslinger walking through saloon batwing doors, but hell, I'm going to call it out if I can.
0: I'll allow it. There's a reason why it's a cliche. It's the cliche that is the reason why King put it in the gunslinger, right?
1: You're absolutely right. I'm also going to point out this one is maybe a king crutch more than any more than a dark tower thinny but that's no the groundskeeper wearing blue jeans and a faded chambray work shirt just like our good friend <laughs> Roland.
0: <laughs> yeah, I I feel like it's the only type of shirt King ever writes about. I I he must know there are others.
1: No cotton shirts, no seersucker, no, it's all chambray.
0: Yeah. And it's always a work shirt
1: and denim jackets.
0: Yes, with smiley face buttons on them. Yes. What else do we got? This one was kind of cool. It turns out that Johnny met Stilson
2: on August 19th. Mm-hmm. It was uh, a hot and clear August day or a
0: hot and clear New England summer's day, the 19th of August. There you go. Yeah. I love these number 19 things. Johnny is going all around visiting with political candidates. He reflects to himself, in the last seven months, he had shaken hands with over a dozen big names. Ah. And if you add seven plus 12, seven months, 12 names, that adds up to 19. (laughs)
1: Yes, it does. You can't argue the mathematics there. Totally intentional. So this is one that you had pointed out to me that I had missed and- uh, Johnny is reflecting on Stilson's past. He he becomes the uh the crazy guy with the uh red strings and the maps and the <laughs> newspapers up on the corkboard because he's doing all yep. this research on Stilson and he finds out that Stilson used to be a rainmaker back when he was a kid. Even at 19, Stilson had been something of a comic spellbinder. 19 is when we point out this important incident in Stilson's past.
0: That's right. That's such a thiny. Uh, I love it. It's kind of like what put Stilson on the map. It was the first stepping stone for his sort of public career, right?
1: Yeah. And even that it's it's interesting because the ranchers want rain and all the other guys are like, "Yeah, give me half the payment up front and I'll and the other half when it rains and I'll make it rain." And Stilson's the only one who's like, "Hey, I trust my powers enough." you'd only need to pay me when I'm done and then you pay me what's fair. And it happens. And the people decide, well, we're not going to pay you because it would have rained anyways, mm-hmm. which is what people always think after the fact. He's like, Hey, remember that story about the Pied Piper Hamlin? He stole all the children. I'm just saying just for reasons. And uh, huh. Starts to extort these guys until he, uh, bad things start to happen. And then, Oh yeah, now we'll pay you. So, uh, uh-huh. typical Stilson.
0: The last Dark Tower thing I wanted to mention is that there is a paragraph about a vision that Johnny has that reminds me very much of Roland's experience on the Golgotha when he finally faces down the man in black. And I'll read some of it here. Then all of it, pictures, images, and words broke up in the swelling, soft roar of oblivion. He seemed to smell some sweet, coppery scent, like burning high-tension wires. For a moment, that inner eye seemed to open even wider, searching. The blue and yellow that had obscured everything seemed about to solidify into into something. And from somewhere inside, distant and full of terror. Hmm. Now, it wasn't a single blade of purple grass, but still, could have been
1: something that Roland saw, that infinite evening that he
0: spent, right?
1: Yeah, I thought that that was a good one. I I didn't make that connection, but when you pointed it out, I I think that that is a fantastic thing. Thank you. All right, so I think we've mentioned before that while this may be a horror novel nominally, in fact, it seems to be more of a thriller and less of a typical gross-out horror piece. And so we're not getting a lot of the yucking-it-ups that we get in other King books, and in fact, I did not find any in this section. Neither did
0: I. So I guess we should just skip over the yucking it up section. Yeah.
1: But what we're not going to skip over is our thank you to our patrons. And Jay and I continue to be thankful for all the people who are supporting this show by becoming patrons. They get access to exclusive Patreon content, such as bonus podcast episodes, which the rest of you are missing out on. There's some good stuff out there, including... We're going to be doing the Dead Zone movie here soon, and you don't want to miss out on that.
0: That is so exciting, Sean. I'm glad you brought that up. I can't wait to watch and discuss the movie starring Christopher Walken with you.
1: And I believe it's on HBO Max now, which I know we're shills for HBO Max, but exciting that we're going to be able to see it there.
0: Sean, we want to keep these episodes a little bit more evergreen. We don't know that HBO Max is still going to exist a few months into the
1: future. Well, I think it's going to exist. Whether or not it still has Dead Zone on it, I'm not sure about. But or,
0: or is even called HBO Max, but...
1: Yes. Anyhow, why don't you be like Casey Casey, who just joined us at the gunslinger level? Casey's going to be the future listener of a podcast on the Dead Zone. And you could be, too, by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Thank you again, Casey Casey, which is the coolest fake name ever.
0: Assuming it is a fake name, because if it's not a fake name, well, I'm sorry for assuming it was a fake name, but it's a really cool name either way.
1: Indeed. In fact, some might say it's a fun name. I think it's time for some fun stuff.
0: Fun stuff.
1: All right. I, I mentioned this earlier, but you got to remember that Dead Zone is one of King's earliest books and he was not that far away from his days as a teacher. And I love how Johnny or King through Johnny has this extent extended discussion of the importance of reading. Not only is it Johnny talking about the best theories and practices for becoming how to read, but there's all this other great sort of ideas about reading that I think not only does King think is important back in 1970, whatever, when he wrote this book, but that he continues to believe and support through this day as he continues to talk about these assholes who do book bannings and, and, and things like that. So so we've, we've got a couple things. He talks about the Western that he's having Chuck read as a good old opera that should have read like the wind. And then he realizes that you want to become a reader because it was a reader's world. The unlettered of America were dinosaurs lumbering down a blind alley. And Chuck was smart enough to know it. Of course he talks to, Uh, Roger about how he would get Chuck to be a better reader. And one of that is to be doing a lot of oral reading, leaning heavily on high impact materials such as fantasy, science fiction, Westerns and boy meets car juvenile novels. Holy
0: crap. That's like all the books King writes.
1: (laughs) It's like his entire genre right there. Like all those things. And in the case of the dark tower, all of those in one series. He also said, this is sort of after he talks about the importance of reading, some of the things that made Johnny Field scared about Stilson is when he looks back at Stilson's term as mayor and realized that funds for the town library had been cut from $11,500 to $8,000. And then in the last year of Stilson's term to $6,500. I just love this stuff. Like King's able to like just sort of sneak in his... Important views on the importance of reading and education and how the politicians who take money away from that or try to ban books are the real jerks here.
0: Yes, they are the real villains. First thing I wanted to talk about was I got a kick out of the fact that when a couple of tough guys try to run Stilson out of town in his early years, Stilson beats them up and shoves their brass knuckles in an anatomical location most commonly associated with sitting down (laughs) so as much of a piece of crap and maybe a scary person stilson is king presents him as a pretty physically formidable guy yeah he's not afraid to take advantage of that in this one instance at least in the story you're kind of rooting for stilson Like, (laughs) like you don't you don't really want him to get beat up and run out of town But maybe he sort of deserved it. But anyway, it's fun that he was able to overcome his attackers Yes, uh, and and shove those brass knuckles where the sun don't shine.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So I liked this line from King talking about how Johnny is trying not to think too far about things in the past, specifically around Sarah. And he says, it wasn't a memory he allowed himself to take out too often. He was afraid that constant exposure to the sunlight of recollection might cause it to wash out and fade, like the reddish tinted proofs they used to give you of your graduation foot portraits. And I like this because it seemed to be a callback to when Johnny first awoke from the coma. Hmm. And he wakes up, and what makes him realize that something is wrong is that not only are there no cards in his hospital room that he would be expected to have seen. But he sees a single picture up against the window, and it's starting to fade and curling up on the corners. And that's when he realizes, holy ca- crap, how long have I been out? And coming back to it here, I thought that was a, a nice callback by King. That is cool. And
0: it, it's also like interesting how observant Johnny is in that first
1: yeah. few moments of, of waking up from a nearly five-year-long coma. Right. And then it's also sad too because it Sarah's not in this section of the book, mm-hmm. except through a couple letters, I think. And her presence is explained away by saying, like, Johnny doesn't want to think of her or those moments because he's worried that it's gonna be ruined if he if he dwells on it. So he just sort of leaves it in his memory, which is sad because obviously she means a lot to him. So
0: Another thing that I thought was really fun was the They're all going to laugh at you moment in in the book. (laughs) King makes a direct reference to one of his other books as though it is a book that exists in the reality of the world of the Dead Zone. Patty Strachan began to talk in a high hysterical voice. It's his fault. That guy there. He made it happen. He set it on fire by his mind, just like in that book, Carrie. You murderer. Killer.
1: Yeah. So is this like the first time that King has gone meta like this? I mean, this is kind only has his to be right third or fourth book, right? And I don't think that there's any other time when he this early where he makes reference to other books or even makes any sort of crossover. Um, in fact, he's very clear at the beginning of this book to say, like, "Hey, Castle Rock's a fake town." Like, he tries n- to not call attention to this stuff. So Johnny mentions the
0: town of Jerusalem's Lot. That's true. So that puts this
2: the world of this story in the world of salem's lot yep and jerusalem's lot
0: which are books by king right and then in this book characters refer to another book by king
1: yeah but here they're explicitly saying like and that but like at least he doesn't say and that book Carrie, by stephen king the famous author that you're currently reading yes now that would be crazy
0: (laughs) what's he gonna do next
1: write a book about uh, a post-apocalyptic disease. (laughs) So I like this mainly because uh, my wife's a librarian. So I, I I noticed these things. They're talking about Stilson's plan where he takes people who are sort of minor offenders of the law and puts them to work. And that's one of the things that people in his town like about him, right? Like Hmm. he's improved the town without just punishment. And one of the things he did was that one pothead reorganized the entire town library from the outmoded Dewey decimal system to the more modern Library of Congress cataloging system at no charge to the town. My wife as a cataloger using the Library of Congress system is very familiar with that. Yeah. And and an outmoded Dewey decimal system in 1978, which my library, which I was just at this evening, is still using <laughs> 40 some years later.
0: I think that Stilson's constituents appreciate this too because there's there's that a little bit of that well yeah make those college kids pay right yeah you know like you arrested some potheads from from college and and there was the other ones who uh redid like the the garden or something or the pond or in, in the town and and he's like oh well I might as well put their talents to use yeah they're potheads or whatever but they are also going to college and learning these like Important skills, yeah. So you know, planning, design, whatever. Yeah, let's Let's not just throw them
1: in jail where they're a burden on the on the taxpayers. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: So the the last fun stuff item I have is a line from Johnny's boss, Roger Chatsworth, the the rich guy, and he says, "It's been my experience that ninety five percent of the people who walk the earth are simply inert. One percent are saints." 1% are assholes. The other 3% are the people who do what they say they can do. I'm in that 3%. So are you. (laughs) I think this is an awesome line. Lots of other folks thought this was an awesome line. In my Kindle edition of the book, I think like 10,000 people underline this paragraph. And the only thing that I would add to this is that i think his percentages are a little off on the
1: number of assholes i think his number
0: is a little too low
1: i would agree with that i also think that yeah i think the assholes is low the saints is high hmm. and i bet of the ten thousand people who mark that line in the kindle all of them think that they're part of that three <laughs> percent Yep. because
0: <laughs> they underline somebody else's work like i did
1: <laughs> it, it's like that old uh George Carlin bit where he says, "You know, like not everyone can be an above average driver. Mm-hmm. You know, that means like fifty percent of the people are are bad drivers. Not that everyone's above average. So, yep, it's definitely not three percent of the people who do what they say they can do." We had mentioned a little bit earlier that we're going to be doing the dead zone pretty soon, and in our other worlds than these, we are continuing to look at the work of one of our favorite actors, and that is Christopher
2: Walken.
0: All right. So this time I want to talk about the 2002 Christopher Walken. uh, It's not really (laughs) Christopher Walken starring. It's a a Christopher Walken movie. How about the 2002 Christopher Walken movie? Catch me if you can. Mm. It also stars Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks. Two other very big stars. But the movie is based on the quote-unquote autobiography of one Frank Abagnale, who claims that before his nineteenth birthday—holy crap, nineteenth birthday—it's a thinny inside of an other worlds than these. We've crossed the Rubicon here, folks. Nexus of the universe, right here. That he that before his nineteenth birthday, he successfully performed cons worth millions of dollars.
1: I would like to point out. Uh, Christopher Walken is a song and dance man. I was first introduced to Christopher Walken's song and dance in his many uh, skits on Saturday Night Live, and as a person of a certain age, that's all brought to the forefront in the Fat Boy Slim video for Weapon of Choice. I think it's a Spike Jones directed video where uh, we don't see Fat Boy Slim at all, but what we get instead is a very classy Christopher Walken dancing around. A hotel lobby, and at some points, even flying, I believe, yeah. uh, to the song Weapon of Choice. And it's just fantastic. And I'm going to put in the show notes a link to a YouTube video where somebody collected like the top 10 Christopher Walken dance scenes put to film um, with a number of honorable mentions as well. And you'll get things like Pennies from Heaven and some other s- smaller movies that I'd never even heard of, but lots of dancing by our good friend, Christopher Walken. I think he was a trained dancer before he became an actor. That is correct. Yeah, loves to show it off. And it, hell, if I was a director, I'd find a way of, of of sneaking that in. You mean if you were a dancer? No, if I was a director, I mean, oh, I would find a way of like, oh, Schwarzenegger's in my movie. Yeah, I'll I'll have a dance scene in here somewhere. No, yeah. it's like if uh, you know, a lot of actors are also good
0: singers. A lot of actors can also dance, but as just a. Just doing an acting role, they often don't have opportunities or reasons to sing or dance. So it's like really fun sometimes to see somebody who, Neil Patrick Harris, like he was Doogie Howser. He played a, a little <laughs> kid doctor, right. but actually he's a lot like Christopher Walken. He's a classically trained dancer. He can sing. He can do all of that stuff. And then he does shows like How I Met Your Mother, right? Right. But every once in a while, he'll do Dr. Horrible. And it's
1: magic. But let's focus on Christopher Walken here. He's the yes. original. He's the original. Yes. And he's fantastic. <laughs> so, yeah, we'll put a link to that in and you could check out. And uh, we'd love to hear from you on what are your some of your favorite Christopher Walken dance moments. All right. That's going to be all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media are available in the show notes. Check out our merch at store. Guys to the If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com Two Guys Dark Next episode, join us as we finish The Dead Zone, reading chapters twenty four through twenty eight, and we'll have our wrap up of the book. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McCurr. Thanks for listening.
2: It's like eating a steak over here.